race, gender, sex. What's your identity? Is religion or faith part of your identity? Can you bring it into the workplace? Can your boss take care of the legal issues? Do they have an inclusion strategy? Are they literate in what religion means to you? Maybe they should give this podcast a listen. This is a Religion at Work podcast. Good evening or afternoon or good morning, wherever you're listening. This is the Religion at Work podcast with your host, Eric Serrione. And today I have an amazing person with us. Uh, she is an assistant professor for the School of Public Administration at the University of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, her primary research interests include social policy, nonprofit organizations, civic engagement, inequality, um, so many awards and accolades uh, here. I'll, I'll just give you her education side of things. BS from business from Indiana University and MPA in nonprofit management from Indiana in 2009 and a PhD in social policy from Brandeis University 2015. She was a something that I didn't see in her bio, which tisk tisk tisk. She is a 2019 10 Outstanding Young Omahaan uh, for her work here in the community. An all-around amazing person. Uh, say hello to Professor Dr. Jody Benenson. Jody, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Absolutely. And um, Jody, we're here, we're going to be talking today about how anti-Semitism is on the rise and how there's some steps that everybody can do to counter it. Um, some things that are, are very, very, I wouldn't say low hanging fruit, but very achievable for anybody to do. So that, that's, the, that's the biggest thing that we want to talk about today. Can you walk us through, just give us that elevator pitch of uh, what you do out there in your work, and then we'll we'll dive on in into some of these articles. Sounds great. Um, I, uh, as as you mentioned, thank you. I'm, I'm an assistant professor in the School of Public Administration at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. This is my fifth year um, at UNO, and uh, I have the privilege of teaching in our Master of Public Administration program and our PhD program in public administration, where I, I get to work with individuals who are currently. Um, working or volunteering in the public and nonprofit sectors in a range of different ways, and also conduct research to many of the areas that you identified in the areas of civic engagement, social policy, social equity, um, and um, the nonprofit sector, um, which is where I was working uh, prior to entering academia. And uh, you know, working and um, serving as an educator uh, to students and with students um, in Omaha, and then getting to work with colleagues across the country and internationally um, to really, um, you know, to have dialogues and conversations about some of the most pressing issues of our time, including right. what do we what do we do about about these issues and challenges, and and how can we address them using a range of different frameworks and perspectives. Um, mm -hmm that are required to address large, complex problems. Absolutely, and one of those wide, uh, complex problems is the rise of anti-Semitism or anti-Semitism in general. Before we get into the definitions and this or that, you and some fellow researchers, you had this epiphany, wake-up call, whatever you wanna call it. It was after the attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue on October 27th, 2018. Can you tell us what the reaction was, how you felt compelled to dive into some anti-Semitism research. 
Absolutely. You know, my colleagues, um, Dr. Jamie Levine-Daniel at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and um, Dr. Rachel Fial at the University of Washington um, in Seattle, you know, reached out um, to me after some conversations they had been having after the mass shooting um, at the Tree of Life Synagogue um, in October of 2018, which was, as we know, the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. And at the time, there were multiple other acts happening that were being documented by a range of other organizations, including institutions like the FBI. Um, and at the time, we really sought resources to help us address what was happening at the time. And really more broadly, as, as educators and as scholars, we really wanted to better equip our students to address anti-Semitism because of the rise that you are talking about. You know, Although less than 2% of adults in the United States are Jewish, there continues to be evidence that anti-Semitism is on the rise. And as educators, we really believe that we have a responsibility to train our students to work within diverse organizations and institutions and to ensure that we are doing this work in thoughtful ways. Um, but we actually discovered that we were a little a little more unprepared when faced with a broader question, you know, if we want to talk about anti-Semitism in our classroom, in a classroom that may teach a whole host of topics right. in the field of public administration, what should we say? And so um, we recognized that we had an opportunity um, to write an article that was mm -hmm. published in the Journal of Public Affairs Education as a resource uh, to our public affairs community so that really our colleagues could feel prepared and empowered to address anti-Semitism in their own and, classrooms. And, and, and that's, that's an important distinction. And I think uh, it's very important because there are parallels to the workplace where you were looking, part of this research is you tried to look for other articles that were talking about anti-Semitism specific to uh, the public administration uh, uh, realm. And you were, you and your researchers, were, you weren't really able to find something. So there was, you needed to generate some of this research specific to working in, in the classroom and such. Absolutely. You know, most of our students are graduate students. Um, I, I have, again, the great privilege to teach graduate students, and many are aware of the term of anti-Semitism and have a general sense of what the term means. Um, but, you know, as we've seen these anti-Semitic incidents rise and the, seeing the increase in anti-Semitic events across the country, students have also become increasingly aware of the ways that anti-Semitism manifests today. Um, but this doesn't necessarily mean that students are always clear on the definition of anti-Semitism and its connection mm -hmm. to their own personal and professional lives. So our goal, again, was really to provide uh, the tools and language others can use to engage with this complicated topic. I think that's so important because uh, I, mean, I, I like this holistic, comprehensive approach where um, you're talking about some of the issues that we might have a misconception is, oh, we're sure this is being taught elsewhere. But even if it is taught elsewhere, it needs to be incorporated and, and be intentional about talking about some of these things that we encounter in the classroom or in our professional lives in the workplace. Uh, let me back up. And so anti-Semitism, I, I feel I don't want to assume anything. How would you define it for our listeners? Yeah, you know, when we were putting this article together, we also struggled to come up with a very specific definition of anti-Semitism um, because, uh, to your point, it is a very um, holistic term, but it's very clear that at its core, anti-Semitism um, can be defined um, as hatred of, hostility to, or prejudice toward Jews, and, and really dates back 
thousands of years. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is that is kind of the definition that that we used. And I can definitely talk a little bit more about how it manifests in different in different contexts as well, if, if that would be helpful. And let, let, let's let's actually let's see how it manifests at a very topical um, situation. And because we, we I would hope that our, our listeners at least have been introduced to and appreciate the historical significance of anti-Semitism. Uh, but even just one week ago at the attacks at the U.S. Capitol, the insurrection, some would call it, there were a lot of uh, writers, insurrectionists there that wore anti-Semitic clothing or were chanting anti-Semitic chants. And, and so what would be, I, I guess, walk us through what is that manifestation of anti-Semitism? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when we talk about the you know the specific language and accusations used with anti-Semitism, um, it's it's evolved over time. There have been some common themes or tropes that really unite this particular form of, of hate. And historically, anti-Semitic messages have centered around um, three broad types of images and tropes. You know, the mm-hmm. first is is dehumanization, right? You know, portraying mm-hmm. Jewish people um, as inhumane or you know demons less than human, or mm-hmm. less than human. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and then you know another is is stereotype, stereotypes. So this is portraying Jews as, as wealthy and in control of, of institutions such as banks, media, government. And then the third, and, and probably one of the more uh, recent forms of um, anti-Semitism or theme or trope is this idea of moral inversion, which um, particularly took place after the Holocaust where um, Jews were portrayed as perpetrators rather than victims. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So, you know, even last week, as you, as you mentioned, um, one of the, the many horrifying images from the, the rampage at the United States Capitol shows individuals wearing clothing, right, that, that refer to um, the Holocaust and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. hinting at the, at the desire, right, to um, continue with, with similar efforts. And so these and related images, you know, captured uh, on television um, really kind of demonstrate that, you know, anti-Semitism is real, the hatred is real, comes from multiple sources, is growing and and needs to be taken seriously and dealt with in sustained and and multiple uh, responses. And and also what we saw, you know, last week uh, really, I think, connects to um, some of the the stereotypes, you know, about Jewish people um, in terms of power and what it is to maintain power and who holds power, being that, uh, you know, many, many who have, um, I guess, demonstrated anti-Semitic actions, you know, may um, choose to, I guess, replicate some of the actions that took place during during the Holocaust. And... I think that's very important because we cannot forget the historical context, the the escalation, if you will, that happened before things like the Holocaust or or other hate crimes, where a lot of it is a, an echo chamber of people bouncing ideas off of each other, hateful ideas, and then somebody having the opportunity to actualize them. And that is a slippery, slippery slope that I think people don't realize how slippery it really is. So let's, however, let's flip the magnitude of anti-Semitism, or we have one extreme about the the insurrection at the Capitol to something else that maybe wouldn't be on people's radars. And this is a term I learned from you that that really caught my eye, and it's talked about in the article and in the scholarly article that you also have, uh, the term administrative evil, because I think I, I think that's a, a, a 
a manifestation of it that is would be much more commonplace in um, in a workplace or in a classroom or in a bureaucracy like a United States government. Um, talk us through, give us give us the four one one on what we're talking about when it comes to administrative evil. Sure. So administrative evil occurs when public administrators do what uh, you know they believe they should be doing to fulfill their organizational roles and obligations and responsibilities, mm -hmm. but in reality, um, administrators might be engaging directly or contributing to evil acts, and this is crucial, are not aware that they are doing so. Um, but in retrospect, it, it's obvious that they were. And this term administrative evil is tied to a term called technical rationality, which is um, what two scholars in our field, um, professors Guy Adams and Danny Balfour, um, identify as a focus on efficiency, on mm. you know, the right way to do things, but taken mm -hmm. to extreme technical rationality can result in administrative evil. And so, you know, scholars of this work um, really suggest that a common characteristic is engaging in acts of evil without being aware that they are doing anything at all wrong. With the Holocaust, you know, being the most lethal act and example mm. of anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. but many other examples have, you know, played out um, in other policy and public administration initiatives like um, Japanese internment, Stanford prison, Milgram mm -hmm. experience, mm -hmm. the Tuskegee syphilis study. And, and you know, many of these examples have come up recently in thinking about um, some additional recent policy initiatives at the federal, state, and local levels, especially during um, the current pandemic and other um, right, and other challenges right. we have faced over the past several can, can, years. Can you and I maybe try to think uh, of a of a of a simple example that we can provide, um, not just in, in the public administration context, but maybe in the workplace when we talk about administrative evil, the one that came to mind for myself was um, the use of breaks and managed time by Amazon, for example, at, at the workplaces where the, the striving for efficiency sometimes takes away the opportunity for a person to use the restroom when they need to or exercise a, a, a religious uh, observation or holiday because they can't get that time off or even away from their stations. And, and, and that's a simple one. Um, and that, that's, and if you'll talk to somebody like Amazon or Jeff Bezos, let's put a name to it, they would say, well, this is necessary for efficiency. Absolutely. And, you know, this, this term does not come without controversy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as, as scholars and academics, we really enjoy a good critique of different concepts and ideas. And, and many do see technical rationality not as a culprit, but as a solution, right, to addressing problems in public administration. Efficiency, right, as being an outcome that is strived for, right? And in public administration, we also talk about effectiveness and economics, but also equity. And mm -hmm. I think social mm -hmm. equity, you know, and just uh, is core, you know, to some of the arguments that may uh, require us to, to suggest that uh, technical rationality with its emphasis on the more scientific analytic mindset and belief in technological progress has served to potentially, you know, to quote other scholars, dim our moral imaginations. Mm -hmm. And I think let's go back to something that you said is so key, where a lot of the times we don't recognize that we're doing it. And I draw a parallel to to something you wrote, something that was written in the article in the conversation, uh, where microaggressions 
are, are very can be disruptive. I'll use an example of Jews are forced to either forego the observance of important Jewish holidays, uh, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Jewish New Year, don't, Day of Atonement. Uh, they could be either they, they have to skip them or breaks, things like that. And it was intentionally put in the article where those are oftentimes unintentional. So that's, I think that's a great way. And, and why do you think that is? Why do we have that, that blind spot? Well, I think, you know, if we're thinking about it from, you know, a technical rationality perspective, I don't think that the um, intention is harm, right? You know, right, the right. result is, is really the, the, just the possibility that well-intentioned people who are conscientiously performing jobs, you know, again, mm -hmm. will, will unintentionally um, engage in, in different um, systems. And so I think, um, you know, as, as somebody um, who identifies as Jewish herself, um, just recognize that change can be really challenging and, edu and education is extremely important in having conversations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, about things that may not even be known as microaggressions, you know, which, um, you know, it can be the, again, the verbal and nonverbal environmental, you know, snubs or um, things that are not always intentional that can oftentimes, um, you know, be compounded for individuals that have intersectional identities, especially in the Jewish community and multiple other communities, as we know. Right, and right. so I think it's, I think the um, important connection here, though, that I think you're making is around the unintentionality of the acts of technical rationality because as you mentioned you know artifacts of technical rationality or kind of more having solely a rational mindset right, um, without right. thinking about our own values um mm -hmm. you know include things like you know division of labor role specialization, compartmentalization that often fails to humanize people in the workplace, which is so important, Absolutely. especially, you know, you gave a really great example, I think, in the private sector, but as, as us as scholars, individuals who have many other research topics beyond um, this work, which actually mm -hmm. veers from the other work that we do, uh, primarily looking at the intersection of the nonprofit sector and the public sector, right, um, right. It, it heightens the need for us to make sure that individuals who are working in the public and nonprofit sector, like our students, are just aware of these these ideas and the equity component that we talked and, about. And, and, and I think that unintentionality, because when I run into people that might be either microaggressing or um, uh, unaware of the language to use when speaking to a specific population or demographic, or simply unaware of a holiday that that might be might be there. So I, I want to pivot, and I want to have to read this quote back to you. Part part of your article um, where it talks about your you and your 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 colleagues in writing this article. Our whole professional lives, we had never considered bringing our Jewishness into the classroom. We never hid our identities, but being Jewish seemed irrelevant to our teaching goals and responsibilities. Of course, we nervously track news about anti-Semitism on our campuses and our cities worldwide, but this is not a topic we discuss with others, especially those at work. And when, when I saw that, I had to read it because it delves perfectly into that self-reflection and how important it is when it comes to finding those unintentional acts, those maybe those those blind spots in our values, in our system, in our value systems, belief systems. Um, why? Why uh, two things, if you want to react to that quote, and second, why is it so important to self-reflect on our own intersectional identities, um, and, and why is it important for any career professional? 
Yeah, thank you for lifting up um, the uh, quotes or I guess thought processes that we mm-hmm. wove into the article, I guess the narrative, as you would mm-hmm. call it from, mm-hmm. from the first person, you know, that's it's not always traditional to do so in articles right. in our field. And we were really grateful that the editors were willing to work with us uh, because for us, these were self-reflections, things we were saying out loud when we when we mm-hmm. were meeting and mm-hmm. discussing this article. And, and I want and I want managers and CEOs to model that, to have that open self-reflection. So yes, go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, it really, again, I think humanizes the work that we're doing. We are not just scholars, right? We are, we are humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we'd never really hit our religious identities before. But we realized, to your point, you know, one of our blind spots was that we also didn't highlight our identities in our classrooms. And um, I think our motivation really stemmed from our own emerging consciousness as individuals experiencing both privilege and oppression, depending on the specific context. And so this this article and the formulation of it really prompted a deep dive into our own identities, but uh, most importantly, our obligations to ensure that rising generations of public and nonprofit sector leaders are able to both recognize and combat anti-Semitism whenever they encounter it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and as we as we talked about, you know, even today, you know, in this time of uncertainty, I think self-reflection is more important than ever, especially as it is, um, you know, I, I'm calling upon each of us to play a role in really helping repair our our what has become, you know, a really frayed democracy by by doing things like engaging one another, you know, in mm-hmm, debate mm-hmm. and and me through my my research and teaching and learning, you know, having the opportunity to have spaces. And for managers, as you're as you're talking about, you know, thinking about individuals in in my classes who serve as nonprofit and public managers and people who not, are not just a part of. Um, informing policy through research and education, but also making policy. Um, I think we have this obligation to reflect on what matters to us as individuals, as humans, um, regardless of our backgrounds, political affiliations, Mm -hmm, or personal mm -hmm. ideologies, to condemn acts of violence, you know, that are, are rooted in a range of different, you know, institutional um, norms and messages, right. um, and to you know speak out in support of our institutions and values that are meaningful to us, and the privilege to have time for self-reflection to, you know, incorporate the narratives um, is, is is so valued and appreciated by us. And so I think um, I'm grateful that you are kind of bringing up the importance of. Um, self-reflection when it comes to the work that we do, because uh, we want to uh, make sure that we are, you know, lifting up the important issues that we're um, consistently surrounded by that are not going to be solved with one initiative, but are going to require all right. of us to come together. Right. Um, and I think any values. And, and I, I think any good leader is is going to take a routine, consistent interim to self-reflect. To and, and I do. Want, I I would love to to hear more about the context uh, when when you when you talk about self self reflection on your on oppression and and your privilege. What exactly for our listeners? What do we mean by that? Because I do want. I do. I would love for all of our listeners to self reflect uh, on the oppressions that they they might encounter or the privileges that they hold out there in in their lives. Yeah, you know we. Um we spent a great deal of time really talking about the the privileges that we hold as as individuals all three of us identify for example as white 
But as you read throughout the article, um, you know, we were really trying to balance the, our um, privileges that we hold as, as white individuals in some settings, right? And, and some of the, for instance, um, stereotypes that might emerge uh, in other spaces or to the point of earlier microaggressions that might emerge in particular spaces as well that are important for us to con to consider, and as we as we continue to have conversations, well after this article was published, we continue to meet regularly and and engage not just in individual self reflection but group self reflection, I guess as well. I don't know if that would be called self reflection, but I think it is. We bring ourselves to the to the space, and group we are by no means. I like it. Noted. Well, we are by no means experts either, right? We're just individuals who come together and need to have conversations that you know. Um, recognize that uh, Jews, for example, um, have played roles in um, reinforcing elements of white supremacy, you know, mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. a range of, of different places and, and are, I think, um, you know, over time that are continuing to you know, understand how uh, we, um, even though uh, as a religious minority with a very co uh, complex history and unique history and one that all of us are, are we're proud of as, as co-authors, as, as identifying as, as an individual who, who is Jewish in some shape or form, mm -hmm, um, we, mm -hmm. we really kind of recognize that we are bound up in many of the structures that do perpetuate racism and other isms. And so as, you know, educators and instructors of, of policy and public administration. It's really important for us to bring our full, full selves to the classroom, but also recognizing the many privileges that, that we are holding along the way um, or that we, that we have in these spaces. Because, because I think self-reflection looks different for everybody. And I think all of us um, who came, you know, the three of us come together with just multiple intersecting identities, whether in our professional or personal lives. And we have a chance to figure out what self-reflection looks like for us. And in the context of this article, um, the narratives really, I think, helped reveal what some of those were. Absolutely. And I, I love a line that you said there where uh, being able to bring your full self your, to to where you are. I think that, well, that's key, number one, to the work at TriFaith and our religious other inclusion uh, curriculum. And um, I think that's the ultimate goal for any manager that really values that DEI lens is allowing or, or no, I, I need to stop using allowing, I need to check myself there and creating that space, holding space for people to bring their full selves into the workplace, into the classroom, into whatever bureaucracy that they might be a part of. So I think that's so, so important. So we talked about uh, some of the issues, the backgrounds, some definitions. Let's switch gears. What the heck can we do about it? So how can we maybe uh, do our part to fight against this rise of anti-Semitism under which we're going through uh, even today in, in 2021. Can you believe that? Um, so there's there's one piece that I want to start with because, again, this is something that TriFaith itself is a huge proponent for. One of the three reasons in, in, in your scholarly article that you, you felt the need to introduce conversations about anti-Semitism within an MPA classroom is to foster cultural competency, which I think is a key term. I want our listeners to write it down right now because I think this is, is so key to, to just about anything. What are we talking about when we say cultural competency? Yeah, so, you know, if we're thinking about cultural competency broadly, we really 
uh, we're thinking about it as defined as the ability to understand, appreciate, and interact with people from different cultures or belief systems that are different from one's own. And in our article, we really, um, you know, believe um, that cultural competency is essential for preparing public and nonprofit leaders, leaders anywhere, right, for yep, yep. for the kind of service that we need, um, whether, whatever sector um, you're coming from. And so, mm-hmm. you know, managers have to manage, you know, diverse multicultural organizations um, that are delivering services, right, often that are paid by us, right, the, mm-hmm. trying to provide mm-hmm. public value to individuals who are in our communities or um, in the organizations that we represent. And Eric, I know you're familiar with that term, given your MPA degree um, from, from, <laughs> from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Yeah, um, but it really, you know, um, you know, focuses on a whole host of issues in our field, looking at, you know, race and gender and ethnicity, sexual orientation and religion. And so we really um, were, you know, we're contributing to that, that conversation as well. And, you know, including these ideas in all of our conversations, I think invites opportunities to engage in, in some of the self-reflection, I think that you were referring to, you know, I think about us as individuals who have the privilege to bring our full selves to the classroom because we work in higher education and we are fortunate to have the academic freedoms to do so. But to your point, not all organizations, institutions are in inviting spaces to bring in um, to, or to invite people to bring their full selves to a space. And so it is about, you know, creating spaces, but also recognizing that, you know, with the rise in anti-Semitism, institutions like higher ed, um, you know, are not always uh safe places to do so because of stereotypes and hatred. Um, and we've seen many cases, you know, of uh, and rising anti-Semitism in higher education as well. So um, nobody's immune. <laughs> Nobody, and especially those in, in, in the workplace. So um, to put the final point on it, and I like the quote that, that, that was provided here, where you believe that building cultural competencies is one way to counteract extreme technical rationality. Just to put a point on that, Building your cultural competency, I think, is key for any manager in in for-profit or non-profit uh, government, uh, public administration. So let's let's on your article on the conversation. I see a great one, two, three, four things that a person can do uh, to help fight against anti-Semitism. The first one is, and this applies either at school or at work. Um, before you schedule events, you can check your calendars for Jewish holidays such a simple thing that a person can do. Why is this so important? Yeah, this is really important because um, Jewish holidays are periods of observance for individuals who identify as Jewish or individuals who uh, may be celebrating different holidays. And uh, the the Jewish calendar does not always align with some of the more standard calendars uh, that we tend to use um, in our workplaces. And so I think checking uh, your calendar um, really kind of demonstrates awareness of um, the holidays that are happening, and not just for uh, Jewish individuals, of course, but for other religious minorities. Uh, you know, as somebody who did not attend school um, during Jewish holidays as, as growing up, you know, it, it was always a day that um, 
I came back to having missed a day, um, mm -hmm. which was um, something that is just built into the public school system that I uh, was a part of uh, growing up. But it was something that, you know, um, my family became accustomed to. And even today, um, when scheduling classes and when my colleagues ask me which days I want to teach um, each semester, I always go ahead and check the calendar to make sure um, that it doesn't conflict with some of the high holidays that right, you mentioned, right. Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, um, Passover, uh, to make sure that um, because we teach at night and because our holidays begin at sundown. So these are just important things, I think, to be aware of so that others are aware. And such a simple thing for you managers out there is just check your calendars for Jewish holidays. Absolutely. Um, and I'd like that you give a shout out to other uh, religions and faiths as well. Check for Ramadan for Muslims, Diwali for Hindus. Uh, second, so and, and I re really do I would love to talk about this one. Do not presume that, a Jew, that the Jewish person or anyone else belonging to a minority group in your workplace will speak up to stave off a schedule conflict um, or or I'll add this to to stave off maybe misconception or, or an erroneous thinking. And you talk about being a good ally. Why is this second point also very important? Yeah, we wanted just to make sure to invite individuals who are comfortable serving as allies to do so because this ensures that there are multiple voices in rooms, that the burden is not consistently being placed on a religious or other uh, minority in a space. And I think ensuring that you know, not presuming that the um, individual who is a Jewish person or um, an another uh, person who may be the minority in the group is going to speak up. Well, I guess basically don't assume that uh, the minority in the room is going to speak up because it just is not always something uh, people are comfortable doing. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. at the same time, I think uh, there, there's strength in numbers. And so the more allies uh, and individuals in, in community spaces and organizations and institutions, uh, the better toward institutionalizing messages and ideas. Absolutely. And let's not forget that we live in a in a society where it is normal to uh, where we, we, we center uh, uh, Christian holidays and we uh, and beliefs and systems and such. And where we're also socialized to not try to be that that squeaky wheel to be that 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 bug in the soup uh, to to be a person that speaks up because you don't want to upset the status quo or upset your neighbor, things like that. So again, I think I like that you make the call for an ally to help out and be that voice and create that space for people that you know might be of a minority group and such. So um, really, really like that one. The third one, let's see here, when an anti-Semitic incident makes headlines, uh, reach out to your Jewish coworkers and other people in your circles. Let them know you see them, acknowledge their pain, and are thinking of them. I, I love this one because it's such a humanizing one. Why is this important? I think it's important for us um, in all communities to mm -hmm. uh, recognize that bad things happen. And it's yeah. important for us to um, engage in dialogues around um, whether that's an anti-Semitic event, a racist event, um, a homophobic event, all that can occur at individual, organizational and institutional levels. And so, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, deliberation and, and sharing thoughts and um, concern and care for our friends, colleagues, family, neighbors and community members are are just so important because um, we need to be having conversations about tough issues, having difficult dialogues and just ethical deliberations, you know, about issues are important for the progress that we need 
to be creating around these complex issues. And, and it's not and it's not as simple as we're making it out to be again, because I believe that we, we are in American society, we are socialized to not talk about the hard stuff, to not acknowledge maybe if something bad is happening. We are socialized to just trek on and, and maybe and show our quote unquote stronger side. Um, but we have to begin, we have to normalize making that space, letting people know that that you're thinking of them, that there is pain associated with an event, whether it's at the U.S. Capitol or at a synagogue or at a immigrant detention center, wherever it might be. Um, I think it's so important and I would strongly advise our listeners to normalize this. And so finally, the, the fourth on, on your checklist here, uh, try to engage in efforts to combat anti-Semitism in your community. That can be getting involved in, in a local chapter of the Anti-Diplomation League or similar groups, plenty in Omaha, Nebraska that you can join and support. Uh, you can also participate in interfaith alliances, such as the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, the Tri-Faith Initiative, throwing that out there. So. Why is it important to support these types of organizations and alliances? Yeah, you know, we're really fortunate in Omaha and throughout the country to have some really uh, great groups that are trying to combat anti-Semitism and other harmful issues in, in our communities. And uh, we need to ensure that we are also finding organizations that are meaningful um, to us, that we know that there can be different ways, for example, to express um, or there can be different ways to address anti-Semitism and, and, you know, a mission of an organization might uh, be closer to one's ideals and values than another. And so I think it's important for us to find organizations and groups that align with our own values and interests and goals and to support these organizations because um, there's great strength and I think power in organizations and institutions. And um, I think in addition to partnering with organizations, we also have have um, a responsibility to get engaged in policy work, you know, that mm -hmm. it, that addresses anti-Semitism. And there have been a whole host of initiatives that uh, seek to do so, particularly in education. I grew up in the Twin Cities, and, and there were some recent conversations around the curriculum around anti-Semitism and the Holocaust um, in, in local public schools, right, and whether it should be continued to be included. So I think that is one example of ways that we can continue as individuals living in communities uh, to continue to be um, both sensitive to and aware of and contribute to uh, the local, state, and and federal uh, policy initiatives that are taking place. And I, I love that you that you uh, went into that um, that tangent on public policy because there's no way I can't let I can't talk to Jody without talking a little public policy. You know, in your article about so Nebraska legislature just started back up. Maybe they can if there is not a law already. Washington state law requiring colleges and universities to reasonably accommodate any student when observing a religious holiday and accommodate them when it coincides with their academic obligations. I think this is such a, a, a no-brainer, low-hanging fruit type uh, um, law or public policy that we can enforce, but I, I feel like maybe this is something that might not have the traction. Um, what other examples or, or reaction do you have to this? Yeah, you know, I think um, 
I think that you bring up a really important point about um, the ease in which different types of policies um, are not only introduced, but also adopted uh, mm -hmm. in different states. And I, I have found that a lot of the initiatives that are taking place um, around, for instance, combating um, anti-Semitism and addressing um, additional issues are taking place at um, institutions as well, um, higher education institutions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even, even at uh, UNO, you know, I have the great privilege of being a part of, of um, conversations around, you know, attendance policies, right, uh, for religious, religious holidays and uh, religious accommodations. And I've been grateful um, for the support and conversations that we've had at our institution. And I, I hope that um, at the state level here in Nebraska and across the country and perhaps even federally, because there have been a lot of federal initiatives that um, have been proposed, uh, especially around um, education. I think we really have an opportunity to encourage our, our policymakers really to make sure that um, we're not only um, addressing issues that uh, directly apply to, um, I guess, only one aspect of anti-Semitism, anti mm -hmm. um, but that we're really truly thinking too about some of the, some of the ethical issues that are undergirding all of these issues, you know, the practices and potential problems that could affect, um, for instance, in the workplace, right, performance and, and accomplishing, mm -hmm. accomplishing mm -hmm. an, an organization's mission and making sure that we are um, protecting students, that we're protecting um, our community members because we need to demonstrate through policy that we're supporting um, and encouraging others, right, to right. uphold right. Their, their own ethical, um, ethical values and participate mm -hmm. in, in things in ways. And so policy is a good way to do that. And, and mm -hmm. I hope um, that we can, um, you know, can come together to recognize, you know, perhaps our moral um, obligation to, um, to protect um, around areas of, you know, discrimination and and here as we're talking about you know anti-semitism and, and we had that moral suasion angle but you also touched upon the economic aspect of it where if you allow your employees to bring their full selves they will be their most productive selves and that does affect that bottom dollar so i i, I want to ask you one more question before we get on out of here and and i wanted to say this for last so we might have some listeners that are like okay anti-semitism got it um, some things that I can do, got it. Um, if I wanted to talk about anti-Semitism in my workplace, what should, how do they start? What should I say? And that's modeled after a question you asked yourselves as you're writing your articles. Um, so, so two questions from that is, do you feel better prepared to answer this question? Uh, you, Jody, and then what advice would you give our listeners on how they can talk about anti-Semitism in the classroom? Or in the workplace? Yeah, so after really digging deep into um, the anti-Semitism literature, uh, recognizing that there wasn't a great deal in our field, um, I do feel a little more equipped uh, to have conversations about anti-Semitism, but I would by no means consider myself to be an expert. Um, I think lived experiences have the potential to fuel, uh, and I can, I guess, speak for myself. I, I believe that my own lived experiences fueled my own interest in mm -hmm. moving forward 
forward with um, the, this kind of work. And I will also acknowledge that I have a lot of learning and growth to do. And mm -hmm. so I would encourage others who might be interested in um, bringing in conversations around anti-Semitism to start in a place where, where you might be comfortable. You know, we, for example, started um, in looking at some of the literature in our field, you know, in journals um, in our field and found that there were actually very few mentions of anti-Semitism in many of the journals, right? So that's what kind of led us to moving forward with mm -hmm. publishing mm -hmm. this particular piece. We then um, really came up with a set of key strategies to figure out, okay, so now that we have kind of a base understanding of where anti-Semitism might be missing in our field and where we might want to contribute, what would that actually look like? And I would encourage others to think about, um, you know, leaning on um, organizations like some of the ones you mentioned, Eric, um, and others in your community, but also nationally and internationally, because anti-Semitism, as we know, is not only happening in the United States, but there are individuals who identify as Jewish who live all over the world mm -hmm. and think about which ones most align with the work that you are doing, um, whether that, you know, is in business spaces, public and nonprofit spaces, um, or a neighborhood and community spaces. And, and, and think about kind of, you know, when, think, when we were having the conversation earlier about how and where to get involved, um, find, find groups that, that align with your values. And fortunately, we have our friends at Google that provide the information superhighway for us to, to serve as a helpful place to start and know that you have resources in your community to, to help um, facilitate these conversations, organizations like the Tri-Faith Initiative and others, as well as clergy, um, religious leaders, and others whose, um, whose passion, you know, and uh, who are driven by having conversations. And so, you know, if you kind of, if you're interested in more about some of our recommendations for educators, I'd be happy to, to talk further about that. But, but I recognize that the intent and opportunities are just going to look different um, for everybody. Absolutely. And you did my closing for me perfectly. Plenty of resources, both in the education sphere, in the nonprofit sphere, in the interfaith sphere here in Omaha, Nebraska. Please reach out to Professor Jody Benenson or myself in the Tri-Faith Initiative. If you'd love to have more to this discussion, Jody, it's been an amazing dialogue that we just had. Thank you so much for your time and for your efforts out there in the community. Thank you.